Looking at the first letter of John in the New Testament. And last week, John spoke about children of God. He told us what children of God are like. He said, children of God work to purify themselves. They work to turn away from sin in their lives. They don't participate in the devil's work, John said. Instead, they make every effort to live in obedience to God. And here's how John finished the passage we looked at last week. He said, this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child. That's what John had explained in the passage. But then right at the end, he added something else that he hadn't mentioned before. Nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. So having told us children of God turn away from sin, John added right at the very end, and children of God love their brothers and sisters. Meaning their church family, their Christian brothers and sisters. That was how last week's passage finished, and now John is going to focus in on what he ended with. What John is doing in this letter is giving us the vital signs of a Christian. Medically, we have four primary vital signs. Body temperature, blood pressure, heart rate, and breathing rate. In this letter, John is giving us primary vital signs for followers of Jesus Christ. And he says, there are three of those. A Christian is someone who believes certain things. A Christian is someone who obeys God's word. And a Christian loves. That's the focus of our passage this morning. John says, love is a sign of life. So if you haven't already turned to John chapter 3, you'll find it in page 1227 or in the large print Bibles, 1901. We're going to read from verse 11 of chapter 3 down to verse 24. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hits you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, 
We know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him, and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. This is God's word. It tells us love is a sign of spiritual life. And right at the start, John says, I'm not dropping something new on you here. He says in verse 11, this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Love is foundational to Christianity. Before he went to the cross, Jesus told his disciples, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. That's what Jesus said from the beginning. And here John tells us, the vital signs of spiritual life do not change. Men and women of God love one another. And love has always required effort. John shows us in the verses that follow the kind of love he's talking about is a battle-scarred, costly kind of love. We're given two examples in verses 11 to 18, one for each part of this. Look at the first example John gives in verse 12. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Cain's brother was called Abel. But Cain and Abel's story starts with their parents, Adam and Eve. Right at the start of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3 tells us the evil one tempted Adam and Eve. He said, look at the fruit God has forbidden. Let your desire for it grow as you look at it. And then take it. Adam and Eve did take it and the results were terrible. Sin and death became part of human life. Well then in Genesis chapter 4, Cain and Abel enter the story. We're told Cain brings an offering to God, but the text says God did not look with favor on Cain and his offering. We're not told why, we're just told something was wrong. But Cain's younger brother Abel also brought an offering. And God looked with favor on Abel and his offering. Cain became angry about that. And as his anger was boiling and bubbling away, God spoke to Cain. He said, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. God comes to Cain and he says, you have a battle to fight here. This is a crucial moment for you. 
Your mom and dad were faced with the same battle. Sin was crouching at their door too. But they didn't fight it. They gave in to it. God says to Cain, don't make the same mistake. Sin is like a power that wants to devour you. It's like a wild animal waiting to have you. God says you must master it. How would Cain do that? He'd do it by dealing with the anger and resentment in his heart. Facing it head on and ruling over it. Refusing to give in to it. The alternative for Cain is to stroke his resentment and feed his anger until it masters him. Whenever God speaks to Cain, Cain's resentment is still like a tiger cub. It could still be dealt with. But God warns Cain, if you don't deal with it, that cub is going to grow. And one day it will be strong enough to tear you apart. Well, Cain didn't listen to God. The next verse in Genesis tells us Cain made a plan and then he killed his brother. That's what Genesis tells us. And here, John gives us more insight into that situation. In the middle of verse 12, why did Cain murder Abel? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. In other words, Cain got angry with Abel not because Abel had wronged him. Cain got angry because Abel was more righteous than him. Cain envied his brother's purity and holiness. Abel was a better man and Cain resented him for that. And instead of fighting to overcome that resentment, Cain fed it. He stroked it until it purred. Then one day it rose up in him and it had him. He murdered his brother. And the word John uses is brutal. It says Cain slaughtered or he butchered his brother. Well, what has that got to do with us? Men and women in the church. Well, notice what John says at the start of verse 12. Two men and women in the church, he says, do not be like Cain. Men and women in the church love one another. Don't be like Cain who didn't deal with his anger and ended up butchering his brother. Well, in what sense could we be like Cain? Are we likely to murder someone? Probably not. But that's not what John is getting at. He wants us to see it is a battle for us to love one another. At times, it will involve mastering the resentment we feel to one another. Battles we ha- will have to be fought in our heart. Sometimes, we will have to rule over the anger we feel to another brother or sister in the church. That anger and resentment might come from a legitimate grievance. Maybe some brother or sister really did wrong us. Or we might feel resentment because that person knows God better than we do. 
They seem to have a joy in the Lord we haven't experienced. And we're envious of it. Or, maybe that person doesn't seem to face the kind of hard knocks we face in life. They seem to just sail through life. And we're a little bit bitter about that. Whether our grievance is legitimate or not, it takes a battle to overcome it. And love that brother or sister. And that is why John mentions Cain. To show us the kind of love he's talking about is a battle-scarred love. He's not talking about feeling tingly and fluttery and teary-eyed with each other. At times, maybe we have those feelings. But that's what, not, not, that's what John is not talking about. That is not what marks us as children of God. But overcoming our differences, overcoming our resentment, that is a sign of life. Whenever you or I have a grievance and we refuse to nurture that grievance... That's a sign the life of God is in us. When we master our bitterness instead of stroking it and feeding it. Sometimes people will leave a church fellowship in a huff. They stomp out and they refuse to come back because someone in there was unkind to me. Somebody in there let me down. Somebody didn't notice me. Somebody else was given recognition that I really deserved. Or, they all think they're so holy, I can't stand it. And maybe all of those grievances were legitimate. They might not be, but let's suppose for a minute they are. Let's suppose there was genuine unkindness towards that person. Let's suppose people in the church properly let them down or snubbed them. People in the church did behave like they were full of themselves. But John says, if you have the life of God in you, you will fight to love those people all the same. Instead of feeding your resentment and bitterness, you will starve your resentment and bitterness. When your anger reminds you how unlovable that person is, you won't give your anger a hearing. John is talking about battling the cold feelings in our hearts. It's that kind of battle-scarred love which sets God's children apart from the world. That's what makes us different from the world around us. We've seen before when it's mentioned in in this letter, the world is not referring to nature. It means this world system that's in opposition to God. And John says in verse 13, you can't expect this kind of love from the world. Don't be surprised if you find hatred there. Don't be surprised if people hold a grudge and nurture resentment there. That's what happens when people are spiritually dead. 
But when men and women have passed from death to life, then they work to master their resentment. When they find bitterness in their hearts, they work to rule over that bitterness. Christian love is a love that has faced its own resentment and overcome it. And then it turns to forgive that brother. Christian love is a love that tackles its own envy so it can rejoice in the success of that sister who's doing well. Even when we long for the same success and we don't get it. Christian love is a love that fights to include that brother instead of ignoring him. To respect that sister instead of snapping at her. Those are battles that take place in our own hearts. That's the kind of love we find in children of God. When people love like that, John says, that's a sign they have eternal life residing in them. One pastor says, the most honest test of Christian love is whether we love those with whom we have disagreed or had difficulty. So let's ask ourselves individually, is there a battle I need to fight to love someone I have difficulty with? Let's commit ourselves to do that. That is the kind of love Cain did not show. And John says that marked him as a child of the evil one. Then John gives us another example. Cain was a negative example and now we get a positive one. Showing us that Christian love is also a costly kind of love. Verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Jesus shows us the cost of loving one another. He loved with a self-sacrificing love. His sacrifice saved us. And that means we cannot repeat his sacrifice exactly. You or I cannot make atonement for anyone else's sins, never mind the sins of the world. Only Jesus could do that. But his sacrifice did show us how to love. We can reflect Jesus' love as we give ourselves for others. John Calvin says, when it comes to self-sacrifice, we can never overtake Jesus but we can follow him at a distance. In fact, if we're God's children, we will follow him. What does that look like? How do we do it? Verse 17. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or a sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech but with actions and in truth. 
Costly love is love that goes beyond words. It shows itself in sacrificial actions. John mentions here sharing our material possessions. In the early days of the church, there were plenty of people in the church who were genuinely in need. 1 Corinthians tells us not many Christians were high up in society. Lots of them were slaves. And so that degree of need might not be so common in our church situation. But there will always be people in the church who have material needs. Maybe they can pay their basic bills, but they can't get out to cut their grass or get their shopping or their prescription. Maybe what they need is just company, an hour or two of our companionship. And in fact, loving people in those kind of ways might be a bigger sacrifice for you and me than just handing them money. Maybe for you, free time is a more scarce commodity than cash in your life. It might be a bigger sacrifice for you to give up an evening on the couch so you can help a brother or sister who needs some painting done or some cleaning. All of us, without too much trouble, can put our hands in our pockets sometimes, maybe for flood victims or pastors in Uganda who need motorbikes. And that is a very good thing to do. It is an expression of love. But for most of us, it's probably not a major sacrifice to do that once in a while. Even if we have to forgo something for ourselves that month so we can give financially. That giving probably doesn't inconvenience us too much. But driving someone to a doctor's appointment or helping them fill in forms, loving in those kind of ways might well inconvenience us. And then we don't know any of the flood victims we give to. We don't know those African pastors. We don't know whether those people have awkward, prickly sides to them. We're just giving to a cause and a smiling face over there somewhere. It can be a lot harder to love the people we actually know because we are familiar with their rough edges. Maybe the people we know aren't always grateful for our help when we give it. At least they might not show gratitude the way we'd like them to. In fact, sometimes they might tell us we could have done it a lot better. C.S. Lewis said, It is easier to be enthusiastic about humanity with a capital H than it is to love individual men and women, especially those who are uninteresting, exasperating, depraved, or otherwise unattractive. Loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. John says God's children love people in particular. 
And that kind of love will cost. It was shown supremely by Jesus on the cross. And it continues to be shown through those who belong to Jesus. He laid down his life in the greatest possible way. We lay down our lives in lesser ways. But all of it displays the love of God. Costly love is a sign the life of God is present. It's a vital sign of God's children. So again, let's stop and ask ourselves individually, what will I do this month to love my brothers and sisters in Christ? Not just with my words, but with actions and in truth. Maybe for you, that will mean persevering with something you're already doing. Some practical expression of love which costs you. And you're tempted to stop it because it costs you. Maybe the message for you is, costly love is true love. It's God's love. So take courage and keep going. But maybe you hear all this and you wonder if you're a Christian at all. In a moment, John is going to ask, what if our hearts condemn us? And we might already be thinking, how could they not condemn us after what we've just read? That's what John deals with next. When you have failed to love. Look at verse 19. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. John says, if we look at our lives and we see some evidence of battle-scarred, costly love, then we know we're children of God. We belong to the truth. It gives us reassurance. It sets our hearts at rest. But what if our hearts condemn us? What if we look at our lives and we know we have failed to love like this? Then John says, we must look to the God of love. John is not giving us an excuse here for being loveless. He's not telling us it's okay to be loveless. But he is saying, if you have been loveless, there's a way back for you. There's a place for you to turn. God is greater than our hearts. Our hearts are not the final court of appeal. God is. And so when our hearts condemn us, we must turn to God. And earlier in the letter, John told us why. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. How can God do that for us? Because of Christ's perfect love. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. When our hearts convict us of lovelessness, we dare not ignore our hearts. We need to listen. 
But once we've listened, we mustn't stay to drown in the condemnation of our hearts. We need to turn to God and run to him because he is greater than our hearts. He knows everything, everything about us, and he's still able to forgive. He knows our deepest failure, and he's still willing to forgive because of Jesus. Well, what then? What's next? We've seen our lack of love. We brought it to God in repentance. We've been forgiven. There is now no condemnation for us. Then we commit ourselves to live as children of God. We give ourselves to be children of God who display battle-scarred, costly love in our lives. And the final verses, John speaks to that situation. When you commit yourself to love. Verse 21. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives on us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. John says, obedience brings boldness in prayer. The situation here is that our hearts have been set at rest before God. And we begin to show the kind of love John has described in this passage. We begin to live as God intends his children to live. And what we find is we begin to have confidence before God. Specifically, confidence in prayer. We have boldness as we ask God for things. The end of verse 21 says, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask. Later in chapter 5, John will give us more detail about that. It is as we pray according to God's will that we receive what we ask. Maybe we hear that and we say, well, that seems to pull the rug from under this verse in chapter 3. I can't really get anything I ask then, can I? It sounded good, but now I know it only if it's according to God's will. So John gave me a bit of false hope there. But can you see, if we are truly children of God, if we're committed to living for him, if we want to see his kingdom built rather than our own, then we will want his will to be done. That will be the main aim of our prayers, to see God's agenda succeed. Psalm 37 says, Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. When God is our delight, then the desires of our heart will center on him, and so will our prayers. And John says we're not to pray timidly and tentatively. We will be bold in prayer. And he gives us the reason for that at the end of verse 22. We are bold because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. That makes us bold. 
Why? Why does obedience lead to boldness? Well, you know what it's like when something captures your attention. Maybe a relationship or some work project at home or hobby or something at work that you're involved in. Maybe your team's doing well in the Euros. You're into something. And the more you see progress there, the more into it you get. The more involved you get. Maybe the room that you're decorating starts to look even better than you'd hoped it would. The garden you're working on finally starts to take shape for you. And when that happens, you go on with even more enthusiasm. That's really what John is describing here. First, we look at our lives, he says, and we see genuine evidence of obedience. We're not still what we hope to be, but we realize we're not what we used to be either. There has been progress. There's evidence to some degree of battle-scarred, costly love in our lives. There's evidence of both belief and obedience. Verse 23, we not only believe in the name of God's Son, Jesus Christ, we also love one another as he commanded us. When you and I see that kind of evidence in our lives, we don't respond by stopping and basking in it. No, we run to God with new enthusiasm. Assured that we really do belong to him. We know we're part of something significant and eternal. We're even playing a small part in what God is doing. And so we ask him to do more of his work in us and through us. So this is not about boldness to bring our personal shopping list to God for more wealth, more holidays, less wrinkles, less aches. That doesn't fit the context here at all. This is about praying confidently for God's kingdom. We see evidence we belong to his kingdom and we're playing a part and so we pray boldly for his kingdom. The main focus of our lives is always going to be the main focus of our prayers. And so when we're living for God's kingdom, we will be praying for it too. Praying boldly. John has told us love is a sign of life. And when we see it in our lives to some degree, we're glad. And we ask for more of it in our lives. When we fail, we come back to the God of love. And we recommit ourselves to love. We're going to close by taking the opportunity to encourage one another in this. We're going to do that by singing to God, yes, but also to one another. We're going to sing, let love be found among us and then beneath the cross of Jesus.